Hey everyone, welcome to Hit the Apex Podcast. It's Jawad here as always. Thank you for joining me this week after a big weekend of racing um, with the Bathurst 1000, the Japanese Grand Prix. We have our world champion in Formula One as well. No surprise, Max Verstappen. Uh, And a lot to talk about and digest, I'm afraid. Or not I'm afraid, but like, you know... I'm afraid that it's not all good news. Uh, kind of had to <clears throat> find myself in the right state of mind, which still I'm not really doing amazing. Um, it's been a very nerve-wracking week anyway, personally. But to, to sit down and talk about F1 and what happened over the weekend at the Japanese Grand Prix, you know, I think my raw emotion was seen uh, when I did grid talk uh, after the race. Thankfully, it was at a friendlier time, so I was able to uh, talk my mind basically then without, you know, being as controlled as I usually am on my own show. Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk about Bathurst first because I feel like, you know, that was the highlight. That was a great race. The great race, of course. Uh, and then go into the Japanese Grand Prix because it, yeah, I, I don't think I felt this um, upset or, you know, mad with with the sport, with F1 for, for a long time now, you know, and, you know, I've been watching for many, many years, been podcasting for quite a few years, you know, back in whatever days when... You know, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton were fighting each other. Um, but then I've been watching the sport for much, much longer than that. So, yeah, I think I'm entitled to to speak my mind and say what I need to. See, I'm already going off topic. Anyway, hope you're all doing well. I uh, hope you're having a good week wherever you are. Um, it's not... I hope it's not raining as much as it is, as it is here at the moment. So, you know, enjoy some sunshine wherever. Uh, let's talk about... Bathurst though first, and that's that's different. Me talking about supercars before F one on and on what is supposed to be primarily an F one podcast, but another great race, another epic great race. Finally, with the crowds back, you know, despite the poor weather too. So pretty much from Thursday till like Sunday morning, the weather was atrocious, and in a forty plus year first, we saw the top ten shootout cancelled on Saturday because. There was such poor visibility and it was just not worth um, anyone going out there and risking it for for pole position. The top 10 cars from qualifying from Friday. Um, And then Sunday we had a dry race, but there were so many wet parts on track. Like apparently they had a burst pipe as well on one of the properties around Mountain Straight. So you could see on the right-hand side of the track, on the exit of Turn 1 of Hell Corner, there was massive, massive, you know, puddle that took, you know, pretty much the whole day to, I think, dry up. And then on the outside where you got the grass, so this is the, you know, most fascinating part of Mount Panorama is that there's hardly any runoff in terms of, you know, asphalt or anything like that we see at modern... Uh, you know, Tilka tracks or F1 or FIA grade one tracks, um, there's gravel or very sparingly there's gravel and then there's grass or the concrete wall. So it is very much a challenge and it was going to be a challenge for quite a few drivers if they found the grass and ended up getting bogged like we did see. So result 
Shane Van Kiesbergen, Garth Tander, win by over a second, just just over a second over Chaz Mostert and Fabian Coulthard. I guess, you know, when you see that SVG has won another race this season, it's his 19th, of course, so breaking that record of Scott McLaughlin from back in 2019, um, you'd probably say, oh, you know, it's 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 the same old story in, in supercars in 2022, but it's anything but when you look at how the Bathurst race unfolded. You had Cameron Waters, James Moffat on the podium again. They'll be bitterly disappointed, the fact that, you know, they've gone, or for Waters especially, three years in a row he's been either second or third here at the mountain um off it with him last year finished second and we'll touch on them a bit later because they had a bit of a bad run through the race too but ultimately with the shootout cancelled and the provisional results from qualifying saw that number six car on pole so another pole position for waters he's been quick like there's no doubt that that uh, monster energy car is quick every time they come to mount panorama it's just you know in the races they've had bad luck or bad fortune they just wrong place at the wrong time and it was actually a couple of years ago in 2020 where it was he having the same kind of uh battle at the end of the race with van gisberg and that Mostert did on this occasion so we had number six on pole surprise front row for the reigning race winner from last year lee holdsworth in the penwright mustang and uh, rookie matt payne so Exciting for them to be up there on the front row. Um, also had the wildcard car, Richie Stanaway and Greg Murphy on the second row. This was after Shane Van Gisbergen or the 97 car copter three-place grid penalty for impeding Macaulay Jones during the qualifying session. So um, I guess, you know, they were spared from a worse, worse start potentially if they didn't improve on their position in the shootout, but then they got the three-place penalty from where they were. But good to see Richie Stanaway performing, you know, in these conditions, which he excels in. And, you know, for those who remember, Stanaway won his one and only supercars race with Cam Waters at Sandown in the wet back in 2017. It was probably one of the best wet weather drives I've seen in supercars, you know, one of the best Sandown races. I've been to as well. Great result for those guys. So we had a had a pretty mixed grid. You had guys outside the top ten, you know, who should have been in the top ten. Then you had some surprise packets all over the place. So it was going to make for a really exciting race. And then we had that start. Yes, <laughs> it felt like um, we're watching some kind of junior category, to be honest, or you know, uh, Formula Three or Formula Two kind of start where we had multiple incidents and we hadn't even made it to lap ten. We already had two safety cars. So the first incident, first lap coming out of the first corner on Mountain Street, we had a multi-car um, situation where you know even Mark Scaife on the commentary was like, the track is jammed, uh, you know, we haven't heard that for a while, uh, well, that was Neil Crompton who said that originally back when um, Murph and, and Marcus Ambrose got together, but yeah, basically it took a while to dissect what actually happened because we had multiple cars hit each other, a couple sent into a spin, and then a car that we didn't even realise was involved was the only casualty from that particular incident, so... Basically, there was like three wide going up Mountain Straight. You had Dale Wood in the Brad Jones car <clears throat> tapping 
uh, Jack Perkins from behind. You had Jamie Wincup to his left and Tony Dalberto to, or Jamie Wincup to the right, Tony Dalberto to the left. Uh, and then Perkins just goes a little bit to the right and Delberto's basically already got two wheels on the grass on the left. So Perkins goes to the right, I think spun the 88 car a win cup and then uh, the nine car as well of Perkins. They both were the only ones who got spun or had damage from the other cars that I've mentioned. But then Zach Best in the Castro Mustang in the 55 car ended up in the wall on the left of Mountain Straight and out of the race. So he was kind of the innocent one in that respect. And um, unfortunately, their race didn't even make it past uh, the first, or that it made it past the first corner, didn't quite make it to turn two, which was really, um, really sad for he and Thomas Randall. Um, they were doing quite well in the lead up to the race anyway. Wait till lap five for the restart and then on the first lap of the restart we have a big one at turn 22 the chase so uh, Zane Goddard in the snowy snowy rivers Mustang another Tickford car he skips across the chase uh rejoins unsafely so you know coming at speed and basically uh loses control as he gets back on the tarmac and takes out i think the eight car which uh had dale wood in it so he would of course has already survived the first lap shenanigans uh being involved in there and then gets totally wiped out by uh the goddard mustang and then that catches matt campbell in the other penwright mustang the 26 car too so you've had three cars written off you know in the second um just on the first safety car restart uh, and four cars in total by that point were out of the race and unfortunately two that was two of the Tickford cars too with with the Castrol car and the Snowy Rivers car but what was Goddard thinking seriously I think my immediate reaction was has anyone not you know seen and like learnt from what happened in 2016 when we had a similar incident happen but towards the end of the race and at the pointy end of the grid where wind cup goes off at the chase and comes straight back on at speed loses control uh gets mclaughlin and garth tander who was leading the race at the time and scott mclaughlin in the volvo and they're all off uh and then wind cup obviously was able to continue on but had that uh uh time penalty to be applied afterwards which uh, saw the race go the way of will davison and jonathan webb in the techno car so that was just a bit of a i mean it brought up the argument straight away of you know should we should we be having co-drivers starting a race like this in in these sort of conditions um can they be trusted because we've had such a big damage bill and a pile up already and, you know, you'd hope that the, the $10,000 fine that Goddard's been given, because, you know, what, what kind of penalty would you give him because the, his car's already out of the race, he's not going to be able to continue. You'd hope that that 10 k fine that he's got will go towards um, helping the damage bill of the other teams. You know, of course, uh, Penwright and Grove Racing with, with the Matt Campbell car was so such a shame because I always look forward to seeing what Matt Campbell can do around the mountain, having been a Bathurst 12-hour winner for Porsche and Porsche factory driver. Um, I think he was at Petit Le Mans like a week before Bathurst. So he's, you know, one of the best international, 
GT drivers and sports car drivers going around and, you know, to be involved in a, in a very, like, moronic kind of incident like this might seem quite amateur, um, but it's sad for him. And then for Wood as well, Dale Wood, you saw him when he got back to the garage, the emotion that, you know, he has missed another opportunity for a good result at Bathurst. And I think the eight car in particular, the um, Andre Heimgartner, RNJ Batteries entry, that was probably Brad Jones Racing's, you know, best chance at, you know, some kind of a some kind of success at Bathurst too. And Paul Bradley has had nothing none for as long as he's been coming here as a as a team owner. So, you know, for them to have four cars and, you know, only one car really flying the flag for them, it was a bit sad to see it all uh fall away like that quite early in the race. So, you know, what do I think? Do I think, you know, co-drivers should start the races? Yeah, I don't think there's a problem with that. I think the problem is that there's a lack of race preparation for them in recent years, having no uh, pre-Bathurst Enduro or Enduro Cup, whatever you want to call it. I know I sound like a broken record talking about this all the time, but hopefully from what we hear, Supercars management are keen to get a Sandown 500 back up for 2023 which would be great you know of course we don't know how much racing we've got left at Sandown before they tear the place down and build a housing estate on there so why not you know um let it revel or like see out its um final years as its traditional endurance like in its in traditional endurance format none of the super sprint stuff so that would be good and you know because we have the co-driver race in at Sandown usually <clears throat> to set the grid it would be nice for these guys to get a bit of practice and not to be thrown in the deep end um right uh, at the you know biggest race of the year so that's how I feel about that um otherwise like most of the time they're pretty good you know we haven't seen a pile up like this in quite a while or ever in fact at the start like that so you know I wouldn't be surprised if next year everything's all fine and dandy um at that point as well I thought and a lot of people thought that we'd be in for like a eight plus hour race given how many stoppages and whatnot we had already and you know the way that we were losing cars as well and potentially 12 plus safety cars I think was one one prediction from uh, the commentators but I think there was only seven or eight in the end which wasn't too bad like after all these incidents got cleared up at the start we got into a bit of a rhythm and it was all fine there was some other incidents later in the race uh, but just you know drivers getting unstuck on their own um, there was Nick Perkat and uh, the uh, Tim Slade car I don't know if it was Slady in the car at the time or Tim Blanchard in the cool drive car he sent him into the wall at Forest Elbow um, and then there was just a couple of little incidents where, you know, luckily drivers were or cars were not damaged or anything. They were just spun round. So that was a big point that I made was that a lot of the driving standards in this race were quite questionable. Um, I mentioned Cam Waters and James Moffat earlier, how they were in contention, you got to say, for this race. But they were spun round by Brody Kostecki at the cutting Um at one point in the race when they were making up ground and got sent right to the back of the field and 
I have to agree with Tickford on this one. I mean, yeah, Kostecki is a hard racer, maybe sometimes too hard and just needs to think through his, um, needs to get a bit more finesse rather than just trying to send it down the inside and, you know, give the old Barry Ryan um, approach of having a go, mate. Oh, you know, it's having a go he is. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I, I, um, I just get a bit over that sometimes. Luckily, he didn't end up in the wall. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we saw Kostecki and Wincup fighting same place on the track, and Wincup ended up in the wall, which wasn't Kostecki's fault. And that was a bit more fair, but you know, hard but fair from Kostecki than what happened with Moffat. You know, he had nowhere to go. You know, so why keep going down the inside and, you know, send him into a spin? So that was a bit more unfair. And then you had Greg Murphy, who, you know, plodded along minding his own business and did quite a great job, mind you, too. The 50-year-old Murph, who hasn't driven or raced a supercar since 2014, um, was minding his own business, doing his own thing, and spun around by one of the um, Kostecki brothers in the tradie Mustang. So... They're uh, Brode Curtin, Jake Kostecki, cousins of Brody Kostecki. So, you know, it's just madness with the Kosteckis, I've got to say. Um, and that, I think, you know, affected their ability for a, or their positioning for a top 10 finish. You know, they ended up finishing 11th in the end, did Richie Stanaway and Greg Murphy. Last time I'll ever see Murph at the mountain in a supercar, he says. So, you know, I'm glad that they did do this wild card in the end. And, you know, as much as... Murph felt a bit of doubt and stuff around, you know, or he didn't want to do it. You know, I think it was really good that he did because it was nice to see him. And for Stanaway as well to, you know, just to come out of the self-imposed retirement or the fact that he quit motorsport at the end um, to to show that he's still a great racer. You know, there's other questionable parts of, you know, he needs to, like, I guess, brush up on his media skills and play that sort of game as well, which, you know, I know drivers don't like doing, but if you want to be in a sport like supercars, you're going to have to do a bit of that. And I think that was his problem, was a bit of the discipline when he was at um, uh, GRM for that last year. You know, they weren't a fan of his uh, discipline where he wouldn't show up for autograph sessions and stuff like that, and he ended up getting benched, which was, you know, quite extreme, but they had to set an example, so, yeah, hopefully if we do see um, Stunaway ever come back to full-time in supercars, you know, he does get on top of that, because he is a great racer, and it's always a pleasure to see, and he's got such a great pedigree too, race winner in GP3, I think, and he's, you know, been on the podium in GP2 back in those days, he's um, used to be an Aston Martin factory driver in the World Endurance Championship for the GTE program, so, you know, he's, he's well-credentialed, <laughs> love, love my boy Richie, always, always a fan, uh, other drivers coming, um, unstuck, we had the 17 car, uh, the Davison brothers, they got swamped at the chase, uh, Alex Davison, was able to get the car out, and, you know, this was something interesting that several people pointed out, it's like, so cars get recovered when they're on track, but then they're allowed to rejoin the race, it doesn't happen in other categories, well, you know, it just gives them a chance, I guess, it's not like they were able to go on and win, so it's not really um, unfair in that respect, but 
what happened later on in the race is that they had a transaxle failure and ended up in the wall at uh, Griffin's Bend. And uh, for Alex Davison, uh, brother of Will, uh, who's the primary driver, uh, sadly, it was his first uh, non-classified result at Bathurst because he's had a 100% finishing record through his Bathurst 1000 career. So that was a blemish on his record now. And um, sadly for Dick Johnson Racing, you know, it was a bit of an anonymous um, run for them in the race, apart from the Davison ended up ending up in the swamp. But um, their only finishing car, the Tony D'Alberto, Anton Di Pasquale uh, entry down in seventh position. So they scored some points at least, and some good points in the top ten. But, um, you know, I'm sure they would have been wanting... A win or at least a podium given the uh the 1000th race for djr and the special livery and everything that they had too um come back to mostert and and coulthard mostert in particular i guess their car had the best race pace and he was so quick throughout it and Chaz, when he was behind the wheel he looked imperious but he just couldn't make any passing he couldn't make any passes in key moments during the race as well, in the middle of it, like, he was behind, uh, I think, a Red Bull car at one point, he was behind Brody Kostecki for quite a bit of it, or David Russell, who whoever was in the car at the time, like, their strategy pretty much was to, you know, get the minimum laps for Fabian Coulthard done and out of the way, um, and Chaz basically did, like, a mega, triple, or quadruple stint at the end of the race, you know, he was in the car early while there were still co-drivers on track to try and make up ground and he just couldn't get past that 99 car for whatever reason and I think that pretty much cost them uh track position there because towards the end you know he was able to get within a second of of 97 and Van Gisbergen but whether he had burnt up his tires or just you know couldn't um find the right places to pass. I mean, we heard during the um, the coverage that it looks like for the 25 car that they had, you know, taken a bit of wing off and emphasised um, straight line speed over downforce, like we saw the SVG and Garth Tander car was more set up for across the top of the hill. Um, so maybe, you know, finding a bit more balance would have been better for those guys, but... I mean, still, it's such a strong result when you look at Walkinshaw and Dreddy United. I mean, how many years has it been now? I think last four or five years, maybe. Or probably not five years, but the, at least the last four years, we've seen one of their cars on the podium, whether it's the 2 or the 22 or 25, as it is now. So, you know, it's still a great result for them. But when you can't win the championship, Bathurst is the one that you want to win, and I'm sure that Mostert and Coulthard would have wanted to win that one, and for Mostert to go back-to-back as well after last year, so that was a bit um, disappointing, and for SVG, they overcame a a penalty as well during the race, they got a five-second time penalty for an unsafe release uh, early in the race, so that was in the pits that they got that for, um, and then their strategy was basically to stay out in one of the stints to create that gap, and they 
basically did once you're at the front of the field you've got clean air and you can do whatever you want so before they made their next pit stop they were able to nullify that penalty um importantly there was a couple of safety cars before that so if you pit under a safety car with a penalty you can't actually um serve that penalty because of course under the safety car you uh you know you have that advantage of the field being compressed and going at a certain speed rather than at full pelt so you've got to do it when it's green flag conditions um but yeah you know you can't really fault Shane um you can't really fault him or GT GT with his fifth win at Bathurst you know that'll be an achievement for him uh because yeah you know not many people are up there with five Bathurst wins in their career and you know he's also a champion as well like a a supercar series champion so he won that and now with five Bathurst wins to his name too he's up there with the likes of Stephen Richards and and Scaifey, Larry Perkins and then of course Craig Lowndes, Jim Richards and um, Peter Brock who you know uh, Jim Richards and Lowndes with seven wins apiece and Brocky with nine and as well for Holden, it's their 36th win and final at the Mountain because, of course, uh, the Commodore is being retired at the end of this year, which means the Holden brand will disappear from supercars altogether, even though technically it is no longer in there at the moment. But, um, yeah, for the Commodore, I think it was just not justice, but, like, it was a poetic finish, you know, a fitting farewell for them to get this... 36th and final win at the mountain as I said already Van Gisbergen broke the record for most wins in a season now with 19 I've still got you know four races to go this season two at the Gold Coast and the Adelaide 500 finale two as well there so could he get to 20 wins you know potentially 23 wins um it is very much possible uh he wasn't able to wrap up the championship though yet so but he should be able to do that next time out at the gold coast some other key results i guess the wild cards we saw um a great running from from Lowndes in the triple eight car with declan fraser the rookie and fraser you know really impressed over the weekend and they finished eighth in the end and talk about even Fraser landing a full-time ride next season potentially um already mentioned the 51 car with Stanaway and Murphy finishing 11th um shout out too to James Golding you know so he was strong in the early part of the weekend in the practice sessions and did quite well but they finished 12th in the end he and Dylan O'Keefe while you also had the likes of um, Bryce Fullwood being the best of the Brad Jones cars, finishing in the top 10 with Dean Fiore. Um, Macaulay Jones, Jordan Boys were doing quite well as well, but they finished 13th in the end. Um, while we also had uh, Will Davison and Alex Davison, as I said, on the DNF list with Jack Smith and Jackson Evans as well. Um, and Nick Perkat, Warren Luff bringing up the rear of the field down in 22nd because they had that crash um, and uh, damaged their steering. So they had to spend quite a bit of time in the garage to get that repaired. So, yeah, that's another Bathurst 1000 run and done. Like, good to see as well that the um, television ratings as well fared better than the, the footy finals, apparently. So, you know, that'll be a big shot in the arm for supercars and for motorsport. Uh, people tuned in, obviously, because 
uh, they were able to telecast it on or broadcast it on the Seven Network as well uh, with their anti-siphoning laws that they have here. So, you know, major events such as foot footy finals and um, or the grand finals in particular and Bathurst and the test matches, Boxing Day test match and whatnot, they have to be shown on uh, free-to-air TV. So, yeah, nice to get more of an audience uh, with that. But otherwise, you know... It's all done and over. Now we've got to look forward to the next round in the Gold Coast. And as I said, two more two more rounds to go, four more races. Uh, Gold Coast will be a good one because we haven't been there in a couple of years. And the first time we're not going to have the endurance format. So it'll be the um, pair of 250k races. And then same thing with Adelaide, which I'm very excited for as well. Because I get to be there. <laughs> and some, some great uh, after after race entertainment as well i think with the killers playing on the sunday night so you know that's also worth the price of admission i think <laughs> uh so yeah that's that's it for supercars moving it on to f1 now and um <laughs> yeah what do i say basically it was a farce you know farce of a day um so many silly things going on like and that's the sad thing is that it all kind of overshadowed Max's coronation as a two-time world champion. Uh, you know, starting it off with the fact that there were sketchy conditions from the outset, or more than just sketchy, it was abhorrent conditions from the outset. I don't know why they didn't just start on the wet tyres. I mean, what's the point of having the wet tyres? A lot of people have said in the aftermath, um, they went out there on the intermediates and pretty much from the first lap were able to gather that, yeah, this is not great. We saw um, Sebastian Vettel spinning with Fernando Alonso send him into a spin, I believe. Um, Then a huge crash for Carlos Sainz at the hairpin as well, which brought out the red flag because he had sponsor boards all over the track too. And this is where it got real dicey and gave everyone a sense of, Really horrible deja vu for those who were watching back in 2014. So we get a red flag out on track. Cars are not all back in the pits yet. They're still coming back. But there's a tractor on the track to recover the car. And not like 2014 where it was, you know, to the side of the track and, you know, already recovering the car that was in the gravel, Adrian Sutil's car. It was on the tarmac. Or, yeah, or just, like, right next to it. And what happens is we have then Pierre Gasly come flying past uh, at speed, even though it's a red flag condition and he was given a um, a penalty, 20-second time penalty and two penalty points on his license for speeding under a red flag as well. He's going, like, 250, which is absolutely... You have to be a bonehead to do that. So, you know, there is some blame to be proportioned at Gasly too, but not entirely his fault but why the tractor already why you know given the fact that back in 2014 Jules Bianchi lost his life because there was a tractor on the track or you know out there before on a live circuit before all the cars are back into the pits it doesn't matter like if it's dry it's probably not much of a big deal but in those conditions where there's no visibility I mean when you look at that onboard footage of um, Gasly coming around you couldn't even see 
the tractor there until he went right past it. And if he, as he said, if he was, you know, a little bit to the left, that was it. You know, he was gone. And we don't want to see that. You know, we don't want to be mourning the loss of another driver at a track where, you know, we saw the same thing happen um, back in 2014. I mean, we don't need to open up those wounds again. I mean, it was horrible. Anyway, seeing that and hearing about it, because it was just like, oh my God, why have have they not learned? Have they not learned from what happened then? You know, I mean, whoever whoever's call it was, you know, the clerk of the course or the race director uh, to allow the um, recovery vehicle to go onto the track before all the cars were back in the pit lane, I mean, they've got a, you know, I'm sure they're going to be doing a thorough review into it, but not again, seriously. And then for Gasly as well to be going around at such a speed while it's red flagged, I mean, what's the rush, mate? Just chill, just slow down and chill and get back to the pits, okay? There's no positions to be gained under a red flag anyway, so I'm, I'm so glad that they avoided a tragedy because honestly we could not n- no one could tolerate that or you know to be able to bear that right now it's just yeah like uh, you know it's it's everyone feels everyone feels their own way about this you know like everyone was devastated with with Bianchi because we hadn't had a fatality in formula 1 since Etten Senna back in 94 and, you know, for my generation of um, F1 fans, you know, born in the 90s and whatnot, we th- thought that, you know, it's safe, so safe now, you're not going to see that happen. And unfortunately, we saw it happen in Formula 2 a couple of years ago, three years ago with Anton Huber. But in F1, that it can't happen anymore. And it did. And it, it's scarring. It's it's absolutely awful. And, you know, I've you know got my own... Um, personal, uh, like, uh, I was such a big fan of Bianchi's, and, um, you know, number 17, his numbers, you know, my favourite number as well, I remember the interaction I had with him at his debut Grand Prix, at the Australian Grand Prix, and, you know, that signature that I got will always be um, very special to me, as well, I've got his number as one of my tattoos as well, because it's it's a special number, and it was his number, so I, I got that tattoo um, years ago after his passing, like, don't need to be put through that again, and then what unfolded afterwards, you know, when they did get the, the race restarted, so the race clock got 50 minutes to go, they say, okay, let's do a rolling restart, um, 50 minutes left on the race clock, had we any idea what was going on with the points situation? No, we were all under the impression they'd be going for partial points, especially after, um, the changes that were made to the regulations last year, or coming into this year from what had happened at Spa last year, given the fact that we didn't even get any racing technical racing laps done or we had two laps behind a safety car and then they gave everyone half points so this year it's supposed to be like righting the wrongs of of spa but no because a race was held apparently full points were still in play but it was not known during the coverage 
The broadcasters and the journalists had no idea either. The way that the Sky F1 team were presenting it was that they'd get partial points. That wasn't the case. After the race, we find out, or when they're in Park Ferme, that no, we're getting full points. And um, because Perez finishes second, because Leclerc gets a five-second penalty for that last lap, um, jumping the chicane at the Casio chicane, uh, or the yeah before the final corner, to um, delegate uh, uh, the sorry demoting him to P three and putting Checo up into P two, gives Max enough points to be declared world champion. And even Max in the cooldown room is like, so am I or am I not? What's going on? It was an absolute joke, absolute joke to have no one aware except for the FIA of course. But it's their job to then communicate that to all the people who are reporting on the sport, so we get an accurate idea of what's going on. I mean, it's also Leclerc's fault for doing that kind of move at the end there to get that penalty, otherwise it would have still gone on to uh, Austin in a few weeks' time, but it was just such a farce. It was so confusing, and even in the even in the post-race, we're still trying to figure out, um, like before we did the show for Grid Talk, trying to figure out, is, is it done? Is it not done? Like, is it going to be count back a lap or something? Or, like, were they supposed to do an extra lap? Like, it... You know, this is meant to be F1, you know, the pinnacle of uh, open-wheel motorsport. Yet, it's like you've got a circus that you're running. And not, you know, in the colloquial sense that we all talk about sometimes, oh, F1 is a travelling circus. It's a literal circus with a bunch of monkeys that have no clue what's going on or they do have a clue what's going on but they can't communicate that to everyone I mean seriously and I feel sorry for the fans who were there at the race first of all you know in such appalling conditions second of all they've not had a race in Japan for two years so if one's come back to Japan is going to be remembered as being, you know, A, the race that there was a tractor on track again and Pierre Gasly almost died. And second, they got all the points wrong. Um, and Max's world championship victory is kind of going to be remembered for that. Like, seriously, what a joke. Got no other words than what a joke that is. Like, I really don't care what, you know, if you can say, oh, you know, you know, if you're not a fan, then you shouldn't watch. Like, you know, what gives you the right to uh, criticise that? You can have your own opinion. Good for you. But seriously, this was an absolute joke where the rest of the race, like, looking through the results, I don't even care, you know, like... They didn't even put on screen the battle between Alonso and Vettel at the end, which was, you know, separated by 0.001 of a second. And we're, I'm so glad that a fan in the grandstand had their phone going because we wouldn't have been able to see that on the coverage. And that was such a close little finish at the line. And considering Vettel as well, where he started and had the spin at the start of the race, then come back and finish sixth, his final race at Suzuka... Before he retires, he gets those crucial points there for Aston Martin. Um, and Nicholas Latifi scoring points as well, you know. Like, it's almost like, I wish we could just rub this race out and, you know, not not do it again or, you know, just move on to the next one. That's, seriously, I just feel really despondent after that one. Not only that, but then 
afterwards on on Monday, I was so glad that they didn't delay this again. But uh, the the cost cap compliance, uh, it was cost cap compliance day, and um, yeah, Red Bull have committed a, not only a procedural breach, which is basically filing paperwork incorrectly, which Williams and Aston Martin got done for as well, but Williams had reported that to the FIA earlier in the year, so thus got away with with a a small fine, but got caught with having a minor financial overspend. So, of course, the minor um, breach is anything up to 5% of the $145 million, which now understanding what 5% of 145 million is it's anywhere up to 7 million dollars 7 million US dollars could you put that down to hardly you know could you put that down to just mismanagement or a minor mistake or you know what what people are talking about oh it was like a you know oversight in the catering budget or something i mean this got makes no sense at all like red bull have come out and said that Oh, you know, we still believe our 20 submission or 2021 submission for the cost cap was under. Um, we need to figure this out because our paperwork shows that it's under. But like I said last week and have been saying the whole time, this is where the FIA need to set the bar and scare the teams into submission, basically. There's no more, there should be no more leeway or giving the teams power in this sort of thing because this is, you know, you give them a little bit, they're going to take a mile. And this is what's happened here. We might not know yet, you know, um, fully the results of this for a while and, of course, no knowledge yet of any any penalties. But the fact that, we know now that Red Bull have committed that breach. Even if it is just, you know, under 5%, it's still a breach. And that's the way it needs to be looked at. Black and white, no grey. It's like, oh, you know, it was just, you know, 1.5%. No, none of that anymore. Enough of this mentality in Formula 1. Oh, because it's Formula 1, we can do whatever we want. They need to follow the rules and that's it. Because then other teams are going to do the same thing, of course. They'd be like, oh yeah, you know, if Red Bull only got penalised 10 constructors points or whatever in a year they didn't even win the championship um, or get a small fine, um, we might as well, you know, do the same thing. You know, spend an extra couple of hundred grand for for an upgrade or, you know, a million maybe. Like, no. This is the thing that, you know... You can love about F1, but you can also hate is the, you know, the pushing of the boundaries. Yes, I want to see them push boundaries in terms of, you know, automotive development and, you know, technology and all that sort of thing. But when it comes to, like, going beyond the rules and and breaking the rules and, you know, cheating, there's no other way of saying it. Um, And with stuff that you do on track as well, you know, some of the driving standards... That's what needs to be rubbed out of the sport. And that's where the FIA need to actually grow a pair and come down hard as an administration. Because what happened in Japan too, the way that it was all run, absolute joke. This cost cap thing as well, you know, if they don't come down on Red Bull hard for this, they're going to be absolutely scrutinised and yeah, I'm like I'm already scrutinizing them, saying that they're a joke of an administration, and they're going to continue to be until they actually make some hard decisions 
which, you know, set the team straight and actually get the competition back in order, you know? And until that can happen, it is basically a circus that we're, we're watching here. Um, so what could potentially happen in terms of penalties, a minor overspend can still see a deduction of points for the particular season, a suspension, um, a loss in aerodynamic testing time on the, on the sliding scale, you might get penalized in that department, which would be, um, hard for development for the next season and also a reduction in the, the budget cap for performance as well so they get to spend or they have to spend um end up having to spend less than what everyone else is allowed to as a result of the penalty so it's all things that you know they sound good in in theory um other things you know suspension or partial suspension so like they could potentially sit out practice sessions for half a year uh as other people have um thought of and and prophesized or whatever so we just need to see some kind of consistency in this. We need to see the FIA set an example in this instance and, you know, get some fear into the teams because they get away with too much sometimes. They need to just get on with the job, um, make fast cars, you know, push automotive technology um to better the world or whatever as part of the sustainability push and give us great racing. Don't try and do this shifty sort of stuff because it's it's not cool. It's not cool. And I know they all want to win and they want to push the boundaries, you know, just to, to you know, be, be the better team. But you can do it in so many other ways without having to spend, you know, an extra five million pounds or whatever on, on sandwiches or whatever the whatever the line is at the moment from Red Bull, I'm sorry, it is, it is very difficult and annoying, and yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are over it as well, so yeah, a shame again, because it feels like Max, Max Verstappen, his, um, you know, credentials are being dragged through the mud too, and I'm not doing that at all, because I think, you know, Max's achievements are, are valid, and He's done such a great job this season and last season as well. Um, but unfortunately, just, you know, the team and their standards are, are quite low if they um, ended up doing this. And, you know, as I said, 5%, and when you look at how big 5% is in terms of the dollars, um, up to $7 million, you can't say that that was a mistake or, you know, just an oversight. Surely there was something systemic going on there. And, you know, we often find that with salary cap breaches like we did with the Melbourne Storm uh, in, in the NRL, which I made the example of too. So they better clamp down on it. They better do something about it. Otherwise, you know, what's the point of having a cost cap or, you know, trying to strive for a better competition, a more equal competition um, in Formula One. Let it just be the way it's been for years and, you know, club for um, teams like, you know, Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull. They're the only ones that can win. You know, let's not make it fair for anyone, you know, because why move towards the future? Why, you know, evolve? Let's just be dinosaurs and be uh, done with it. <laughs> and on that note, I think it's time to 
to wrap it up. Sorry for all the negativity, but um, I had a lot to get off my chest this week. It, as I said at the start, it was a bit of a, it has been a bit of a tough one as well personally and a lot of nerves and whatnot. So, you know, I think I had to put that energy into, um, you know, getting my point across with this too. So thanks very much for tuning in. Um, good to have a break this weekend uh, before the United States GP. I'll be back to review that one uh, when that's done. But until then, of course, you can reach out on Twitter, social media, at Hit the Apex Media, and of course, the link tree as well with all the other links relevant to me and my um, motorsport content. Thanks, and see you next time.